welcome to Ogilav Nanagus. Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologist Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody at www.storyarchaeology.com. Series 4, Rowing Around in Rama. Episode 11, The Mungorn Mysteries, Some Poetic Fragments. The Colloquy of Columkill and the Youth at Khan Olerg. As it might have been reported by the most insignificant and junior of the sainted man's monks. Some say it was Mongol, son of Fierkner, who spoke to Columkill that Thursday morning. They had conversed all day, they had, and all night too. Some of the brothers, aggrieved by this sudden loss of guidance, had agreed to keep a watchful vigil on the curious behaviour of their master. It had been a sleepy vigil for most but not for the youngest of them, murmuring voices under a chilly moon had kept him from sleep. Now, in the yellow dawn, the rim of a misty sun had lifted above the mother-of-pearl horizon. The beautiful youth stood still, haloed against the dawn, his long hair flowing with the morning breeze. His face and his figure was in shadow. It was strange thought the young brother, this mysterious visitor was somehow always in shadow, a leafy bough shade, a, a sudden wisp of sea mist, the low dazzle of evening light. Not once had he seen the stranger clearly, not once. And when had the youth arrived here, at dawn on the border of the great sea lock? Oh, no one had seen his coming, and if this was the young princeling Mongon, son of Fierkner, then where was his retinue? Why had he come alone? Ah, but there were whispers about this youth. Whispers of prophecy. Whispers of destiny. Whispers of a gifted power. He had heard it said that Mungun was not the son of the king, but the child of Manandhan himself. He had heard it said that Mongun came and went from the Isles of Promise at will, sharing the skill of his sea father's knowledge. Some whispered he could change his shape, becoming as insubstantial as the sea foam. But all said he was, even at his young age, a poet of great wisdom. The brother, the most insignificant of the community, the least noticed, the most infrequently missed, had moved closer to the two figures who stood in conversation. He'd strained his ears to hear what words he could. Colm Kill's words were easy to understand. He was asking the stranger where he had come from, but the reply made no sense. It must be that he'd misheard. I have come, the youth had answered, from unknown lands and from known lands. I am here to ask you whether it is in this spot that knowledge and unknowledge has died, has been born and has been buried. The holy man was about to speak again. The young monk had hoped for better help in understanding. I have a question for you, he'd heard Columkill address the youth. What is the history of this lock? A simple question, though not one he could have answered, thought the young brother. The young stranger was looking up, staring towards the waters, as if he were seeing into the past. That I know well. It was yellow, it was flowery, it was green, it was hilly, it was full of liquor, it was rich in silver, it was full of chariots. That was when I was a deer, when I was a salmon, 
and when I was a seal of great strength, when I was a roving wolf. The young monk had tried to make sense of what he was hearing. Was this some sort of calling up of the land under wave? Were they all shapeshifters there? The stranger had turned, and the young monk had to creep closer before he could make out more of the words. The stranger, Mongon, if it were he, was still speaking. Sails, a yellow sail, it carried a green sail, it drowned a red sail under judgments of blood. Though I am not wholly of mortal parentage, so do I not live in the mortal world. The two men had turned away, walking into tree shadow, and the young brother could hear nothing more and had returned to his day's tasks. Even his psalter and the learning of the Latin could not be more bewildering than what he had just heard. And now it was the dawn of another day. The stranger and the holy man were still deep in quiet conversation. They now sat together on a rocky outcrop, their backs turned to the community of monks. The fresh morning light flashed one sudden golden spear, piercing the low cloud, and the young monk briefly shaded his dazzled eyes. When he looked up, the holy man sat alone. The stranger was gone. The youngest, the most insignificant of brothers, did not hesitate. He ran like a child and sat quickly at the feet of Colin Kill. Father, who was that you were speaking to? What was he saying? Nothing really, replied Columkill, carefully avoiding the young brother's first question. He stood up, yawning, stretching his arms. I'm not sure that I really understood a word he said. But there must be a story to tell. You talk to him for long enough. His story is not one for the world that we are now making. The saint began to walk back towards his waiting monks. The young brother followed him, just catching the words that Columkill added almost under his breath. Not for a while, at least. So we got to the third and final episode concerning this remarkable hero, Mongol. Yeah, it's been some journey. Um, what we're looking at today, it's um, a bit of a mixed bag. It's kind of everything else that we could find. All the stuff that hasn't fitted in so far. Well, yeah, exactly. And a few surprises. Well, absolutely. Um, we're going to start off with the text that's generally known as Mongon's Frenzy or mm-hmm. Balimongon. And um, that comes from our old friend Lu from mm-hmm. Navarmahudra, um, which, as we said before, contains so much of the Mongon mm-hmm. stuff, the yes, brown stuff. It's interesting that they're all together. Really, oh yeah, aren't they? yeah. It, it seems to be a, a very uh, set collection, you know, and that definitely the brown and the Mongon stuff seem intimately connected. And one of the older collection, collections, isn't it? Well, there are parts of it that may well come from Kindramashnekta, the, ah. the Holy Grail, but we'll come back to that a bit later. So that's the Balimongon, Mongon's Frenzy. Then we're going to look at some very interesting little passages which concern Mongon meeting with Saint Cullum Kill. Mm-hmm. And a couple of those are little bits of uh, poetry um, that have come from a text that's known as Cullum Kill's Psalter. It's a collection which has, I think, like hundreds of poems mm-hmm. concerned with mm-hmm. Cullum Kill, including about 150 that are actually attributed to him. Cullum Kill himself. Yeah, to Cullum Kill himself, exactly. Another poet. Uh, well, yes, yes. Well, according to. According to these. Yeah, attribute. exactly. According to these. Uh, Attributions, sorry, I'll get that word right. Sources, yeah. Um, but there's also a, a wonderful prose text. Telling 
of the meeting between Mungon and Cullen Kill. This all it seems to be all about one specific time that they met uh, somewhere near Loch Foyle. The colloquy between Cullen Kill and the youth at Carnolark, which you used for your opening story. In a way, we'll come back to that yeah. later. <laughs> yeah, uh, roughly, roughly. Yes, that's a really interesting, uh, really quite old text, uh, even though it's preserved in quite a late manuscript in H318. Um, but yeah, again, we'll look at that in more detail when we get to it. There's a few other bits of poetic fragments just concerning Mungon that show up as examples for poetic meters. We have mentioned them once or twice, so we it's have. nice to actually get to talk about them, even if it's just briefly. Just briefly, yeah, exactly. I mean, they, they really are fragments. Mm. They're just little little gems Snippets. that are nice to pick out, you know. So they come from some of the Middle Irish uh, tracts on, you know, how to write good poetry, basically. Um, and then finally... As we promised, I think, we're going mm-hmm. to try and put together what we can about Mungon's death. And it turns out to be extremely interesting. Oh, it really certainly is. surprised me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of it comes from the Imre of Bran. Oh, yeah. And yet, I don't think I'd noticed what I've noticed this time. Well, exactly. Once you put it together with a couple of other little references, it suddenly... Gets interesting. Yeah, it really does. So that's what we've got on our plate for today. So strap yourselves in. <laughs> Let's start off with the text that at least has a bit of story with it. Well, yes, yeah, some story to it. Yeah, this, this is the Balia Mungon or Mungon's Frenzy is yeah. how it's known. Uh, yeah, it all starts with Mungon's wife demanding that he tell her this adventure he's had. Yeah. It's an unspecified adventure. Mm-hmm. Now, before we begin to even ask about the adventure, there's another problem. Mm. Now, his wife here is called Fintigan. Yeah. Now, what's going on? Is this another wife? <laughs> another name? Well, or what? Um, we did comment last time because when we were looking at the um, how it was decided that Mungon was Finn uh, in the last oh, yeah, episode, yeah, yeah. there the wife was known as Bro Tigern. And I said at that time it was a noble flame. Yeah, the least noble Tigern. Exactly, yeah. So now we've got Finn Tigern, which would be fair uh, nobility. And, of course, we've had his mother called Queen Tigern, which is the sort of the gentle or the, you know, the nice, let's say, uh, nobility. Oh, nice noble lady. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Nice noble woman. So, I mean, I was wondering last time, because especially in the um, Bro Tigern story, she seemed so different in character to Dovlaka. And we know, of course, it is more than possible for uh, particularly an, an aristocratic Irish male to have more than one yeah this is no problem whatsoever exactly nothing you know nothing wrong with that yeah but this this kind of repeating of that element of tigern does suggest i think it may well be a title it's almost like saying you know king's consort you know it makes sense Mm. you know this doesn't help us with the other problem we've got what did he do on this adventure she's going what did you do in your holiday (laughs) (laughs) Uh, she, she seems to feel that she definitely has a right to hear this story oh yeah and she gives him a hard time over it she does um and mungon can't deny telling her he can't say i won't tell you all he can do is put her off for seven years. He says, I'll tell you in seven years' time. That seems to be the most he can do to sort of avoid telling her about it. So she's got to wait for seven years. Yes, but she does seem to have a right to know about it. And it does seem to be something important as well. I'll tell you eventually. Exactly. If you haven't shut up about it for seven years, then I'll tell you. Or if we're still married in seven (laughs) years, then I'll tell you. (laughs) Well, she just has to wait. Yeah. And eventually the time's up, but it still isn't a simple matter. It's still complicated. Mm. Timing is very important in this story. I mean, we might not know 
what story is going to be told. But we're very clear about when it's told Mm -hmm. because the text takes great care to synchronise this telling with events in the annals. The annals, these are these sort of historical or pseudo-historical kingless. Yeah, I mean, there are many different annals texts. The one that we're looking at mostly for this material are the annals of the Four Masters. But they tend to be, they were certainly written later, and what they are is an attempt to create a complete chronology um, and synchronise kind of biblical Mm -hmm. stories, mythological stories, and historical uh, kings and lines of kings and dynasties. So it's this huge single Synchronization project, sort of genealogical list, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but with everything in it. So, but in this case, uh, we are told that this telling of Mongon's frenzy happens when there's a great gathering at Ushnak. Oh yeah, this was in the year of the, what was it? The death of Kiron, son of the craftsman, and the taking of the kingship by Diarmid. I think, if I remember right. Yeah, and this is a Diarmid who is very closely connected with many. Uh, stories of Cullen Kill, and we'll come back to that later because yeah, that seems yeah. very important. Yeah, and then just when the scribe has sort of carefully established his historicity yeah. in the account, the hotel moves into a mythical environment. Yeah, the mood of the piece completely yeah. changes. Well, we've got this great hailstorm that comes out of nowhere and creates the 12 greatest streams of Ireland forever. Yes, until Judgment Day. Well, we've got a mythical moment of creation here. Yeah, and it really points out that having that historicity from the annals by no means excludes having this suddenly very mythical event happening just in the middle of it. Well, it means something to Mongol, without a doubt. I mean, he takes this moment of creation to gather up seven of his men, his wife and his historian. His Shenikut, yeah. yeah. Almost as though he's been waiting for it. Yeah. Now we suddenly we're in the familiar other world where you've got this usual wonderful dwelling by the, by or in a mound. Yeah, it's never quite clear. They seem to be the same thing. Exactly, rimmed by trees, glittering with bronze. After that, it gets really strange because it's all sevens. Yeah. you've got uh, seven notable inhabitants who provide luxuries, beds, blanket, treasure, etc. Mm. Then there's seven vats of wine. What on earth with all the sevens? Well, yeah. I mean, you've got people twice, mm. vats, even the seven years that uh, Dovlaka Dov or whoever she is has to wait. That's been taken and us. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, I mean, we often find threes, nines, fifties. Mm. But, you know, sevens actually aren't so frequent. They're not. Seven is actually quite unusual. I mean, we come across threes oh, all, the all the time. We've got them yeah. coming out the ears. Um, we've come across nines a lot, um, quite often in that military context mm-hmm. where you have a nine versus seems to be like a military unit of some sort uh, or that's what we think anyway and of course you've got 50s you know and 50 seems to be like it means loads or it means sort of complete a complete number. amount yeah. yeah exactly you know 50 horses and 50 chariots you know lots the right amount um but what we have here with the sevens i think there's some kind of linguistic poetic double meaning going on a bit of punning and it's because particularly the term for seven people is more fesher yeah now what that literally means is big six okay you know you've got uh cheshire would be and still in modern irish means six people it's shay fur you know yeah, so six yeah. men six people and then more fesher is a big six people, i.e. seven (laughs) people, yeah? Um, But I think that it's quite deliberately punning on that idea more fessa, 
Yeah. Now, did, he was supposed to be one of the teachers in the four cities of the north, going it, right yeah, back to the yeah. beginning of Mount Tura. Um, and in that context, it sort of meant great knowledge, more okay. fessa, the fess as, uh, as so knowledge. So you've got this pun between uh, a big six yeah. and a great lot of knowledge. knowledge. Yeah, That's and really I think so. Let's try an example. How yeah. does it work in the text? Well, there would be a sentence, let's say, uh, Mungon went with a more fesher into a mound nearby. So that would could be Mungon went with seven people into or, a mound nearby. Or he went with great knowledge. Exactly, or yeah. he went with more fetter. And then once he's inside the mound, he met a, or he found a distinguished more fesher within. So he found a distinguished group of seven people. Oh, he finds really good. Great knowledge. Exactly. You know, that, it really works for mm. me because it reminds me so much of the way, you remember the mounds in the story of Mungon and the student, where yes. they're described. Exactly. And he's going in because he has the knowledge to go in. Yeah. And inside he finds great knowledge to bring out. Exactly. And that's why he's been sent there. And that, that's well, in the... Mungon's great knowledge. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it's, that's from uh, Scale Mungon, uh, from the last episode, Mungon and the Poets, uh, which you'll be able to find up on the blog. Well, once he's retreated into this other world setting... Uh, what does he do? He just gets drunk. Yes. <laughs> and it is not, as Meyer has delicately put it, uh, he has a glass of wine. No, he gets messed. He gets drunk. <laughs> Absolutely out of his brain. You know, it's really interesting because it seems as though he's had to retreat into this place, into this seclusion, mm. in order to be safe enough to tell the story. Yeah. I mean, he's asked for a wait of seven years already. already yeah. He's very nervous. I know, he seems a bit terrified. He's got a bit of dutch courage. I'm getting, it's almost as if, if I tell this story, I will die. Yeah. I get the feeling it's almost as though she's forcing him to break a gash of some sort. It has that sort of flavour to it, doesn't it? The only story that comes to mind, if you remember the the Welsh flower story, Mm. when the woman made of flowers, Bloodworth is trying to persuade uh, him to tell her, you know, is there any way in which you can die? Yeah. He says, oh no, I'm fine, it's far too... Well, show me. Exactly, yes. (laughs) Well, if I stand on the edge of the bath like this and I put my foot in a goat like that then oh, any on, bystander could just chuck a spear straight through yeah <laughs> I mean it's nothing to do with the story no. but it has that feeling that she's pushing him to do something that is very very dangerous exactly, to yeah. do yeah that will be risky and that that is the flavour of Gesha yeah it is isn't it yeah. so therefore it must be a really important story yeah. so we don't get to hear it do we no alas we don't get to hear it but we do get to hear that once it has been told and they've spent a night in this beautiful other world palace um they wake up the next morning they're back at home in Rathmore, up in larne no longer around ishnook down mm. in meath and what's more they thought it was overnight but no they've been away for a year it's pretty <laughs> typical of other world journeys isn't it? it we're still stuck what's the actual frenzy do you think yeah i mean i was wondering about whether this could be a reference to the year that he spent apart from Dovlacha, that story that, from the Book of Formoy that we covered in the first yeah. of the episodes, um, that in that time of separation, you know, he went rather soft. Yeah, it's just that, I'm not sure. After mm. he lost, lost Dovlacha, it was more like he just seemed to give up. Mm. Wasn't that more like a lovesickness? Yeah, I mean, it did have those characteristics of the Shergliga, lovesickness. I mean, there's lots of Shergliga stories. Uh, it happens to Oingus, it mm-hmm, happens to mm-hmm. Cúchalan. Um, it's quite a common affliction, especially for other world men. Or, um, but it's so often it's caused by another world lover, but it's also cured by them. I suppose, in a way, I, I was trying to find whether that was true with Mongols. Mm. Um, you could 
could, if you really look, say mm. that his uh, problems were, first of all, caused by the hag in Scotland. Yeah, the first And one. then eventually cured by the hag of the mill. Yeah, and I mean, the hag of the mill, as we pointed out, her name was Memory. So it does seem that he gets his memory back and then starts behaving very differently. And he, he does. Gets, yeah, yeah, he gets his sort of initiative back at mm-hmm. that point. Yeah, he stopped scoring once. <laughs> Stop rolling, rolling, rolling once, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but as I suggested in... You remember that article on Rhiannon Meet de Vlacca? Yeah. Um, the situation is a bit similar to the, to Rhiannon's relationship with Puch. Yeah. Except Puch, he hasn't lost control. He's just a bit slow on the uptake. <laughs> <laughs> he is a bit. Yes, take anything from here, anything you like. Yeah. Oh, well, I'll have your wife then. That kind of... Mm. Yeah, he is a bit slow on the uptake. Oh, With, that is what Mongon did. It, it is what Mongon <laughs> did. But the thing is that in the during the separation, mm. which is what I'm kind of wondering, is this the balia? The main affliction, if you like, is that he's not fulfilling his duties as a king. Yeah, you know, yeah. And, and that's, and that's really, not what's happening to Puck. Is that no, no, it's not. Puck just loses his wife, whereas, uh, you know... <laughs> and his wedding. Yeah, yeah. And his head, yeah. I mean, the other thing, it's a bit tricky because the story of Mungon and Dovlaka, it is later than the other stories that we've been looking at. I mean, it's much more in the mould of the romance stories, the medieval mm-hmm. romance stories. Yeah, and I mean, after all, the way his warriors, I mean, this is Mungon's yeah. warriors, they look at him and go, do you want us to go and get your, wa- your wife back? Before? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> you know, will this sort you out? Yeah, We'll yeah. go and get her back and then you'll be all right. It yeah. doesn't quite fit in the same way. No, and that does at least kind of shame him into going, oh God, I better do something about this, hadn't I? But yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's hard to see that as a frenzy, as a bully, I have yeah. to say. I think we're just straying a little bit from what we were talking about because, after all, the story that we're now concerned with is not a shared glitter, not a love sickness. Um, it is termed Balia. Oh, the frenzy. Exactly, yeah. Balia, which is a, usually translated as frenzy, especially in a tale title. Um, but it does mean a fury and very often a madness. Yeah. Um, it's closely related to stories of Gelte. Now, Gelt is generally translated madman, but it usually starts with a frenzy, a balia, that happens on a battlefield. Do you know what I'm hearing? I'm hearing an early description of post-traumatic stress disorder here. Yeah. I mean, you know, all this running around going mad and yeah. so forth and uh, then disappearing into the, into the wilderness, exactly. getting flashbacks, sudden violence. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. It really does sound like it. And what's more, in the stories of the Gelta, very often they have to be brought back into society by a saint and usually by talking to the saint. So I think that's really curious that this is another role that used to belong to the poet and then was taken over by the saint yeah that he would go off and find the poor guy who's who's running around uh the the backwards with no clothes on thinking he's a bird i have to go out and (laughs) talk to him bring him back in bring him back down you know interesting so it's not some sort of magical poetic inspired thing it's just Come on. I know. Yeah. It's, it, it sometimes gets described as this shamanic journeying to the other world to retrieve a broken soul. It could be as simple as going out into the backwoods therapy. and talking him down out I of the tree. I thought of that. That's really interesting. <laughs> well, of course, the best known example of this story, of the, the balia, which is then related to a gelt, is the balia sivna, which is... Sweeney. Sweeney, exactly. Mm-hmm. Sweeney astray or Sweeney's frenzy. Um, there's a wonderful poetic version done by Seamus Heaney which mm-hmm. I recommend to anyone so that's one where Swivna goes mad on he's the battlefield he's the one who wanders around being a bird he, yeah he's in the tops of trees there's a lot of poetry that's ascribed to him which is mm. interesting and he slightly doesn't fit the main pattern because he never really comes back he mm. does talk to St Maling and that's where we get a lot of the, the stories not, not from not very good therapist well 
<laughs> I think so. The sort of he decides he's happier in, yeah, the, in yeah, the tops yeah. of trees. And why not? Yeah, and there's there's another story which is quite well known, which is called which is Balian's Call, which is the the Phantom's Frenzy, and this is one where Lou kind of comes back as a spectre to Tara and starts giving out about how badly wrong everything's going in, in Ireland. And <laughs> oh, kings these days! Yeah. Like, oh, well, they used to. Why, Pretty my much. day? Yeah, yeah, you've got it easy. Exactly. <laughs> now, they do, of course, include some prophecy about <clears throat> the, the kings to come. Probably one of the best-known uh, frenzies in the wider sort of literature mm. is, is Lodzlot, the Arthurian yeah. story. Now, he actually manages to combine a love sickness and a frenzy yeah. at the same time. I mean, he's sort of driven mad by his love for Queen Guinevere and then his betrayal by Elaine, the boiled woman, you know. Boiled woman? Oh, yeah. <laughs> what? No, it's all right. Is that like when boiled he... sweets? No, no, when he finds her, he goes into this uh, little village and there's the castle and they go, oh, thank you, you've come, Lancelot, the best knight in the world. And he finds this woman sitting in a tub of boiling water right. and start naked and he's the only one who can pull her out. Right. She falls in love with him of course. and then tricks him into to sleeping with her uh, by right. pretending to be the queen Ugh. and then he promptly goes insane, runs ah, around right. uh, with nothing on. I don't know that he actually ends up sitting at the tops of trees. But yeah, but it yeah. does sound very, very And he gets like... brought back bit by bit. Mm. There is something similar. Yeah, and I mean, very often Shergliger stories are very close to Gelt or, or uh, Frenzy stories. You know, they do share a lot in common. Now, do you think it's true that uh, Bolia could imply a sort of prophetic or poetic frenzy? I mean, you mentioned Sweeney, where it seems to be so. Yeah, certainly. I mean, Sweeney is... Uh, some of our very oldest uh, poetry is attributed to, to mm-hmm. Sivna. I think uh, when when you look up the word mm-hmm. Bolia, there is this sense of a prophetic vision or a poetic madness... Um, but I feel that those meanings are secondary, and I think it's by association mm. with people like Sivna, possibly also with Mungon, you know, that these people who have their madnesses also write poetry, or also <laughs> have, to mad. Well, yeah, also have poetic <laughs> inspiration. But I do think that the primary sense is yeah. of a fury. You know, yeah. it's that kind of raging madness, yeah. you know, that, that sends you... The battle madness. Yeah, exactly. And very PTSD-ish. I know. Yeah. It, it never struck me till we were talking about this. Yeah. So, that this is possibly the earliest description we can find yeah. of that condition. Yeah, and how to try and cure and it. kind of accurate. Mm-hmm. The problem we've got is we've still no idea what this dangerous secret is. No. And um, I don't feel it's a separation from Dovelock. Because if it was, why would it be such a troublesome tale to tell? Yeah. She sort of knows it. Yeah, Exactly. And why the need to secrete themselves in the other world for mm. this? If you're going to look at this Balia frenzy as possibly connected to a poetic vision, we know already from Scale Mungon that he doesn't need a frenzy to get poetic inspiration. He's, he's a student to do the job. <laughs> well, he does have a student to do the job for him, but he's got it safely tucked away in the she mounds. You know, he doesn't need that sort of yeah, madness to access I mean, it. That, that story told us clearly that Mongol, if you like, is a key that mm. opens the doorway into the hollow hills to access inspiration, yeah. whether it's a stone or a key or what. It's yeah. just there, that keystone. He's the keystone yeah. that opens the doorway yeah, into, poetic into the poetic inspiration from the other world. Yeah. But you have to sum that story up like that. Yeah, absolutely. If it's not about a separation with Dove Locker, then we're kind of left 
having to go, well, this is a story that then just can't be told in the mortal world. He's had to hide himself off in the other world, wait seven years and get drunk before he can tell it. And it's only appropriate there. Exactly. That's the only space where that story can be told. You know, we have another story without a story here. We have that in Scale Mungon, where he sent off the scholar, and because the scholar did everything right, there was no story. Mm. Here we have a story which is about, it's about how Mungon's frenzy was retold, but we never get the story itself. Yeah, and here we are in the mortal world, so we don't get to find out. I know. Well, not now. <laughs> Our next group of fragments that we're looking at concern a meeting between Mungon and the famous Irish saint Cullum Kill. And I suppose in deference to the annals mm-hmm. and the medieval desire for, what, you hemorrhization, yeah. wanting to make everything historical, yeah. I suppose if you take the dates, in theory, they could have met. Mm. Now, according to Adovnon, who was the ninth abbot of I owner until his death in 704 so he's not much later than Colin no Kill. and he's often considered as Colin Kill's biographer yeah. as well and he says that Colin Kill was born in 521 and died in 591 yeah so the Mongon who died in 625 mm. so Colin Kill could have met Mongon on one of his later returns from exile to Ireland yeah I mean for example there's the uh, convention at uh, Drumcate which is Limavady in County Derry so we're in the right area well yeah, we are. I mean, Cullen Kill is very strongly associated with all that area around Derry. Um, that was a convention that was supposed to have happened in 575. I think that was the one where he had to strap a couple of sods of earth onto his feet because he had been told he couldn't set his foot on Irish mm. soil ever again. But as we just saw in the Ballymungon story, that was supposed to have happened in the year that Dermot came to power. Um, took sovereignty over mm-hmm. Ireland. Now, according to the Annals of the Four Masters, which is where we get Mungon's death mm-hmm. date of 625, Dermot came to power in 544. So that would have been the time of the Ballymungon. Mm. Um, now, we did say this Dermot is very closely connected with Cullum Kill, and he's the one who essentially drove Cullum Kill into exile by delivering a judgment onto him, that one about to every cow its calf. And that was supposed to have happened in 560. You know, if we're going to be really picky... <laughs> Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, if you think that um, Mongorn in 544 then, when Dermot came to power, yeah. he's then been married for at least seven years, yeah. if not longer. Yeah. And yet, so, you know, I mean, even if he's married at 15, we're... You know, he's done he's his in, early 20s, right. yeah. And then 30 years later, yeah. he turns up and meets Colum Kill and is very clearly described as a youth. Well, he might have had very good skin. <laughs> No, we're just being picky. I suppose the way I'd look at it is that Colum Kill has a very, very strong likelihood of being an actual historical character. Yeah. I think there's a lot going for him. And that his, you know, his life is fairly well documented. documented. So you could regard him as a historical character who has gathered mythology. Yeah, um, whereas we're seeing Mungor more as a mythological character who kind of gathers history history around him. Yeah, yeah, if you can expect that. Yeah. So in that case, we've now established a potential historicity between the immortal, or at least serially mortal. Uh, yes, uh, we will of... come to being serially mortal in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> well, the serially mortal son of Mananan yeah. and the exiled dove of the church. Mm-hmm. So we better look at the text concerning their meeting. Yes. Well, in this material concerning Cullen Kill's meeting with Mungon, whether or not it was historically possible, let's leave that to one side. But what we have are two poems, or short pieces of poetry, and then one very poetically told piece of prose. Let's begin with the poetry. 
Yeah. Now, the first one uh, which we have is effectively a praise poem of Colum Kill that's put into the mouth of Mungon. Mm -hmm. It's attributed to Mungon. And this comes from the manuscript um, Lord 615, which is one of these copies of what's known as Colum Kill Psalter. Mm -hmm. So it's Although they're later manuscripts, they're 15th, 16th century, they still contain plenty of poetry that's in good old Irish. Mm. Well, I suppose it's what you'd expect mm. as a poem praising Colm Kill. Yeah. Mungon in this does say that he has come from Tir Tarangura, from the land of promise, as we might expect. And uh, the opening certainly hedges its bets. <laughs> the praise is pretty comprehensive. Yes. I mean, Colm Kill is described as beloved, chaste, gentle, just, firm, dispute and combative. <laughs> powerful and miraculous. Yes, uh, it it makes a bit more sense when you hear it in Irish because of how it sounds. It is Cuiv, Colum, Coide, Cuin, Covid, Covsed, Covdolach, Covrovach, Covachtach, Killa, Mirvalach. Now it does kind of carry on in, in that kind of vein as you might expect. I mean, that description at the beginning with all that alliteration of Colum Kill is almost a direct quotation from the Fela Oingasa, which is the 8th century martyrology of Oingas the Kaldi, is how it's usually translated. Um, and there's other familiar elements in mm -hmm. the description. Um, one that I noticed was that Columkill is said to have, well, a glass eye. <laughs> Where I get the giggle. I know, I know. Get out of the glass eye. Not a glass no, eye. No. What do you mean? <laughs> the, the I know. The colour word glass. Yeah, as, glass. In, yeah. as in sea green or blue green. And uh, it put me in mind of quite a well known little quatrain that is attributed to Cullum Kill about when he's leaving Ireland yeah. to go for Scotland. And it's all this, you know, a sea blue eye looks back at Ireland fading away. I shall never look again on the men of Ireland or the women. So he has blue you know. green eyes. <clears throat> yeah. Not so, glass eyes. No, not glass. Well, <laughs> it is glass. Yeah, no, I. <laughs> no, it just sounds silly. But I love the description of his curly, luminous hair. Yeah, I guess me. So he's got glass eyes and luminous hair. No. Oh, yeah, the loudness of his voice is mentioned it again. It is, yeah. Let's see if I can find the bit. Yeah, the sound of Column Kill's voice abundant its sweetness above every train to the end of 15 score paces. It was clear. Yeah. <laughs> and we did come across that one before, I think. In yeah, his about... stentorious voice. I mean, there's some other very familiar descriptions, particularly when that cross over almost like quotations again from the Imrov Bran poem and particularly Mananon's description of the other world um, that here in this poem Mungon says that there are thrice 50 islands uh, which as you said is like three times 50 yeah, you know, it's three it's, times that big number exactly yeah so it's not just big but it's three times big mm -hmm. and indeed some of these islands are three times as big as Ireland and we had almost precisely those words mm. describing it only here I think Mungon says that he's been sent directly to Colum by the Son of God himself. Yeah. Um, so it links up with that sort of Christian side of the prophecy in him of Brahms. Yeah, with consistent with the interpolation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think it's also worth noting here that this conversation is taking place right beside Loch Foyle, which is Sea Loch in Derry. It's where the city of Derry sits on Loch Foyle. And Loch Foyle, of course, is Loch Fevel. And our Bran of Imrov Bran is Bran McFevel. It's his so place. It's his place. So mm. it's very specifically connected with this. The second poem that we're looking at, I think it comes from the same manuscript as the first. I think it's Lord 615 because the printed text said Lord 613, but I can't find a record of that manuscript. But I'm not so hot on the manuscript stuff. I think it comes from the same source anyway. This one is 
put in the mouth of one Murrow of Fothard. And he, again, is tied into dating and history because he has a death date in the annals, which is given as 650. So, again, we're still dealing within a century of each other. You know, he could have been very young at the time that this colloquy took place. What I like is it gives more detail of the meeting itself. I yeah. Mean, it's got this wonderful detail. It happened on a Thursday. Yeah. <laughs> I like that so much. I put it into my opening story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the poem's quite short and it, it mainly tells how Mongol came over the sea from the flock abounding land of promise. Yes. The last stanza is a little bit tricky. Yeah. Based on the translation, Mongol found not any help when he went to see heaven but his head. Great the prophet under column kills cow. Now, when I first read that, I thought it implied that Mongan didn't learn much from the meeting, but that Columkill benefited hugely. That's what it sounded like. Yeah, I know. Unfortunately, kind of having a bit of a closer look at it, I think it's more the sense that, you know, Mongan didn't get much help when he went to see heaven, but that the head, with great effort, under Columkill's cowl or under Colum Kill's cloak. So it isn't that Colum Kill learns from Mongo. Well, whose head is it anyway? I know, I know. This is it's a problem of prepositions and it's also a problem of chevilles and all this kind of thing. So it it is difficult. I don't know whose head it is. But I think I think the sense is that even though Mungon has been to heaven and presumably back again, you know, has he died, died come back again? If it's quite possible, then we'll okay. we'll see more of that later. Um, that even though he's been all the way to heaven, he never really learned anything new until he met Cullen Kill. Yeah, so you know, yeah. Cullen Kill is the only person who ever. So we've got a situation where either it's that he can come and go from the Isle of Promise mm. whenever he wants, you know, sort of as it were, go to that world yeah. and come back, yeah. or he's been to the Christian heaven and back mm. again and lived several lives. Yeah, but that. His meeting with Colum Kill is the most important. Well, it's the only time he learned anything new, let's right. say. <laughs> so, in the light of this text, it does seem as though Mongorn is serially mortal. Now, I do think it's significant with these two scraps of poetry that, in many ways, Mongorn is needed in order to give Colum Kill status. You know, someone as important as Colum Kill, who's described as only second to Patrick in terms of the Christian saints. But that even he needs to be praised by someone as great as Mongon. Yeah, and it works the other way. Yeah. I mean, it also shows that Mongon is important enough mm. to be seen talking to the great saint Colm Exactly, yeah. They, they are backing up each other. They are. Let's talk about the third piece. Mm. I mean, this one's in prose, isn't it? It is, and it comes from a, a different manuscript from the poems, uh, although it is another 16th century manuscript. It's Trinity H318. Even though the manuscript itself is 16th century, there's an awful lot of really nice old Irish language preserved within it. It's like the language dates from between 750 and 900. So this piece is definitely old Irish. It really is. There's a good article by Professor Carey in Eru, volume 52, about this and another piece which concerns Bran. In which fact, we're, we're using his we, translation. We here. are. We're using his lovely translations and his comments about uh, the texts. Um, and he kind of doesn't feel that the this text could be put as far back as the 7th century, which is what uh, previous scholars have done, but it's also no later than the 9th. So mm -hmm. it's pretty firmly within the 8th century, 
probably quite early. So funnily enough, if, if you wanted to be a euhemerizing analyst, then you could say, well, this is still within that century. <laughs> yeah. I must say, this is the piece on which I base the opening story. Yeah. Although, I have to say, I used uh, Kunamaya's translation for the words of uh, Mongol, yeah. purely because they were so delightfully obscure. I know, I know. There was a little bit more wriggle room, really. Once you've had uh, Carey's translation, then you go, oh, that's what it is. Oh, okay, then. <laughs> it was such fun. Yeah. Now, there's no attempt to set this one in a locatable time. No. Um, it begins in an almost I'd say wistful manner. Mm-hmm. Some say he was Mongol, son of Fekner. And of course, all Mongol's answers through this piece are all given in a sort of series of poetic riddles. Yeah, yeah. Although Professor Carey makes them much more understandable. Much clearer than Meyer did. They are still nicely paradoxical, yeah. let's say. I come, said the youth, from lands of strange things, from lands of familiar things, so that I may learn from you the spot on which died and the spot on which were born, knowledge and ignorance. Mm. It's kind of nice. It's wonderful. Do you think this passage is showing just a hint of criticism of the new Christian knowledge by an old non-Christian poet king? Well, I kind of feel it more as a moment in between two different worlds of knowledge. I feel it's similar to the the Aglavnashinoric mm-hmm. project, whereby while the new Christian knowledge can read books, it can no longer read the Dinhenicus as it's written in the landscape. Yeah, now this is something that I was thinking about because this meeting must take place on one of Colum Kill's uh, The Exile, yeah. who in many ways has self exiled himself. Mm. And it takes place on one of his few returns to Ireland. Mm. And it's always said that he had to have sods of Scottish soil. So yeah. he, he has deliberately separated himself from the land. And mm. the Dinhianicus is yeah. all about reading the land. Exactly. And Colum Kill is no longer yeah. connected to the land. Yeah, he's very deliberately, physically cut off from it. That exile itself, one of the causes was that Cullum Kill rejected the judgment of his king. Mm. That Dermot had made a judgment about the ownership of the copy of the book and Cullum Kill rejected it. He's talking to Mongol, yeah. who is, if you like, the archetypal poet king. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it just it, it comes together, doesn't it? I almost got a shiver on that one. <laughs> thinking of, yeah, hang on, we're dealing with an exile who's cut himself off from off from the land. Yeah asking about the stories of the landscape. Mm. But now, having talked about the separation and difference of these forms of knowledge, Kill actually asks, sets Mungon a poet's test. He asks him for a Dinhenicus of the spot where they are. And Mungon is able to give this beautiful, very visual, very vivid description of a great plain that was there before the eruption of the sea lock of Loch Foyle. And it, see, this seems to be a sort of lost in Yannickers. I think so, yeah, it certainly reads that way. Mungon says, I know that. It was yellow, it was flowery, it was green, it was hilly, it was rich in liquor and strewn rushes and silver and chariots. Yeah. It's a nice description. Yeah, I mean, this is very much Mungon demonstrating the core poet's knowledge that, in fact, Yoku Rigegish from last episode couldn't do. Oh, I wish we still had the story. Well, we might do if we only had our holy grail, the Kindramashnechta. Yeah, right. Now, the next section of this story really firmly embeds Mungon within a poetic tradition which includes Avergan and Tuan Macarel and Finton and so on. Yeah, Munken says, I have grazed it when I was a stag. I have swum it when I was a salmon, when I was a seal. I have run upon it when I was a wolf and gone round it when I was a human. Well, this kind of I am 
poem as we tend to term it. It does show up quite regularly. The best known is probably the Song of Avergan, which in translation begins, I am wind on sea, I am ocean wave, I'm a drop let fall by the sun. And then, of course, there's the Taliesin I was. Yeah. I was at the place of the crucifixion of the merciful son of God. I've been three periods in the prison of Arianrod. I have been the chief director of the work of the Tower of Nimrod. I am a wonder whose origin is not known. Yeah. And the reason that I picked those lines is purely because it really sort of brings together ancient biblical history, yeah. Welsh ancient stories. Yeah. It throws it all together into this sense of wonder. Exactly, yeah. And But there is also that sense of, you know, having been in many places at many times. Yeah. And what we have, again, in the Irish, there's the stories of both Finton and Tuan, who are maybe a bit more like what Mungon was just saying about having been a stag, a seal, a salmon, and so on. They are serially mortal, <laughs> yeah. And it, they also kind of provide provide some of the uh, evidence for the Book of Invasions, the Lever Gavola. And in many ways, that's where I first came across it. I'm sorry to say, because it sounds so cheesy, in my grandmother's house, she had the Jim Fitzpatrick books of The Silver Arm and The Book of Conquest. Yeah. Oh, it's not cheesy. To anyone who yeah. first remembers the first time they came across A one of those Fitzpatrick. Oh, yeah. Fitzpatrick books, you don't forget it. No. Those images just jumped out at you in jewel-like clarity. Exactly, yeah. And the words stuck. What really stuck in my head was from The Book of Conquests. Uh, again, being told through Tuan, and he used these lines, I am Tuan, I am legend, I am memory turned myth. You don't forget it, do you? No, you really don't. <laughs> the I ams are so useful. Oh, yeah. I still use it as a way of um, creating poetry with children, of writing yeah. about ourselves. I mean, if you were an animal, what sort of animal would you be? If you mm. were a colour, what sort of colour would you be? Mm. Um, if you're a piece of furniture. And it creates these wonderful metaphor poems. Yeah. And they're inspired by this poetry form. Yeah, and I've found it useful as well, like getting... Uh, children who are not necessarily native Irish speakers to start creating in Irish because you can start with this form Ismisha, which is one of the first things you learn mm -hmm. when you start school in Ireland. Um, and I've used it to then create kind of poem plays, you know, so mm. there's action involved in it and so on. And yeah, really get kids engaged with the language. I think the time when it became most useful to me, this poetry form, was when I was working with, with the um, International Arts and Health conference mm. in Dublin and Dublin Castle mm. you know, a few years ago and if you like I was a bit of a st token storyteller yeah. and uh, I did this so-called art intervention <laughs> at the conference yeah. where wearing a white coat with a badge I was wandering up to people offering them their uh, poetic prescription yeah. and saying oh if you were an animal what sort of animal would you be and I was writing them down on this form and handing them back their I am poem yeah yeah Goodness me, it was popular. Yeah. But I found out an awful lot about them. That's I know. I should never say. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's the problem. Once you start asking people to say, I am, then they start telling you something about themselves. It's almost like offering them a mask. Right, yeah. People start talking about themselves as if they were wearing a mask. Yeah. That's why I think this type of poem, there's a lot more to it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Than we can talk about now. Exactly. It's very powerful. So, let's get back to the text. Yes. Can we accept that there seems to be a belief that Mongorn has lived through many lifetimes like Tuan or Finton? I think so. I mean, I think this piece makes that quite explicit and it sheds 
new light on the story where it was inferred that Mungon was Finn. Maybe he wasn't only Finn, you know? <laughs> Maybe there's an awful lot more to him. And of course, um, he hasn't finished yet. No. Um, he goes on, I've landed there under three sails, the yellow sail which bears, the green sail which drowns, the red sail under which bodies were conceived. Women have cried out because of me, though father and mother do not know what they bear, with labour for living folk with a covering for the dead. That's a bit more obscure, isn't it? Well, yes and no. I mean, at first when we were trying to figure this out through Meyer, it did seem awfully obscure. But this business of the three sails, it seems they feel more like banners, I suppose, than some kind of obscure symbol. Almost like he's been there under three different banners. So, or, you know, with three different three companies. three different groups that have come into the area. Exactly, yeah. Or three different battles. So I suppose we can sum it up that he's saying that he's seen human life over many generations. Mm. Colin Kill goes on to ask Mungon what lies under the islands that are to the east of them. Not, I would point out, as Meyer says, to the west of them. is definitely to the east. And Mungon's clearly familiar with the land under wave, so he has an answer ready. Yeah. Not hard to answer, said the youth. There are long-haired men with broad territories beneath them. There are great-addled pregnant cows whose lowing is musical. There are bovine oxen and equine horses. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Although I quite like um, Meyer's horsely horses. Yes, and, <laughs> and his deer-like deer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Of course, um, uh, Professor Carey prefers um, well, oxen, doesn't he? He gave oxen rather it's than deer enough. for the, yeah. the word dav, because it really can be either, and it's mm. hard to tell, you know. So it's just a, a simple choice, really. This really is so like our text of, you know, Imrod Bran mm. and, and of Mael Doon as well. I mean, what have you got there? You've got, oh yeah, other world cattle and domestic animals mm. are wonderful, huge, life-sustaining, yeah. but sometimes dangerous or monstrous. Oh yes, yeah, exactly. And, and often kind of oversized, let's say. Yeah, and of course we've got the horsely horses, mm. not monstrous, although we do have monstrous horses on some of the islands. Oh, we did, yeah. We definitely had the horses eating each other and the giant invisible horses and so on. And then he also refers to the music, that once yes, again, yes. you know, this ambient sound, mm. the musical, was lowing his musical, so there's this ambient music. And yeah. this is always typical of the other world. It is, um, Do you know, I was just thinking, it's so much like that uh, the, the Tempest, Yes. you know, where, where Caliban says, be not a fear, the isle is full of music, yeah. sounds and sweet airs that give delight and hurt not. That's yes. probably paraphrased. Yeah, but it's, it is that kind of feeling to it. Yeah, isn't which it? just struck me that although Shakespeare is supposed to be talking about the new world mm. it does give me the feeling it was pretty cognizant of the sort of Irish tradition of the, the fairy other world the idea of the other world oh absolutely it is fairy advisedly there yeah yeah, yeah. Um, well I mean as in Midsummer Night's Dream we know that Puck is from the Irish Puka and his aerial just struck me in passing yeah that the Tempest does feel very like another world Imrod doesn't mm. it and again this music yeah it, it was just always loved about the Tempest exactly yeah um, and then of course you've got all the beautiful people with flowing hair oh yes just like Mung gone with yeah. his flowing hair. The next part of the description is a bit odd though. Mm. It goes, there are two-headed ones, there are three-headed ones in Europe, in Asia, in lands of strange things in a green land whose border is a border as far as its river mouth. Mm. Well, we certainly have met, you know, dog-headed and cat-headed people in particularly some of the more Christian Imrov texts. Um, as for the, the triple-headed, um, 
I think there's almost a version in the Ikura. Mm. If you remember the yes. island of the Smith That's there. right, yeah. Yeah, and that was said to be Invertrechenen, I think. Now, this is kind of off the top of my head. And that was a sort of a three-headed sea, sea monster. monster. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so... Yeah. It's a bit roundabout. I mean, Kerry gives some other examples of Irish texts which do have like two or three headed monsters. They're not, common. They're not actually. They really aren't that common. Again, well, no three headed giants. You know, this is not no. really no good territory. No, no. But if you want to know about monsters, ask Jacqueline Borge. She's written <laughs> quite a lot about them. So, yeah. Then you've got Europe, Asia. Mm. Now, it just struck me. I wonder if he's saying that the hidden other world has no limits. It sort of stretches beneath the severing territorial bounds of the mortal world. Yeah. Or is that too fanciful? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's that feeling that faraway places may as well be the other world. You know, if you've never been to France, how do you know it's not I was mythical. thinking more of Lachlan than France. Actually. I know, I know. But it's France for one person, Lachlan for another. You okay. know, maybe it's just... It's these... over there, it's other. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I suppose now they've established each other's credentials. Yes. That's what's been going on, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, Colin Kill has tested Mongan's uh, right to be a poet yeah and, uh, uh, and he just tells Mongol that's enough that's yeah fine. yeah <laughs> heard enough now in many ways the Irish early Irish saint just replaces the poet well yeah I mean there is this continuity and equivalence uh, where the older poetic schools which I tend to call universities mm-hmm. um, do continue on to become monastic schools so there is if not a, a historical continuity there's definitely an equivalence and so where Mungon was this archetypal poet king you've got Cullum Kill in a more modern setting as the, the archetypal saint. poet saint exactly yeah and yeah and in the same way as the uh, the old poet their gift of words mm. gave them ability to do wonders yeah yeah and so the saints seem to accrue equal wonders exactly yeah well after they've sized each other up Colm Kill and Mungon they talk together about earthly and heavenly mysteries for a whole day 24 hours and the rest of Colm Kill's monks as we heard in the opening story are kind of watching them from a distance um but then once that day is up Mungon just vanishes yeah, it's it gone. just disappears. Yeah. And then comes the bit I like best. Yeah. When the monks asked what was said, Colin Kill turned around and goes, I can't tell you. Yes. <laughs> what the translation said is, when Colin Kill's followers were asking him to reveal to them something of the conversation, Colin Kill told them that he could not tell them even a single word of anything that had been told, and he said that it was better for mortals not to be informed of it. Now, I yeah. wonder, is it that he didn't understand what they said, <laughs> or that they wouldn't understand, they would yeah, you know, I just imagine them going, you know, what did he say? You know, I never understood a word he said. I know, but I was just, he was just talking and talking. I just nodded and smiled. <laughs> I sure that's not what it means. No, it's just what it sounded like to me. I don't know. I wonder if there is a bit of deliberate ambivalence going on there. I mean, if we wanted to be a little bit uh, less uh, flippant about it, you could say this is the kind of knowledge that you can only gain if you have a direct connection to the other world. Yeah, and this has uh, interesting connotations about this text connect attitude to Christianity. Yeah. I mean, it seems to respect Christianity mm. and Colin Kill, but it also gives the pre-Christian equal weighting. Yes, exactly. That it, It's that thing of saying this is a different form of knowledge and there needs to be a connection between the two of them. Uh, but both are equally valuable. Exactly, yeah. Like the Tig text. It's very much like that Tig text where everyone can have their own little bit of other world and if some people want to think it's heaven, let them think it. You know, but for people who aren't interested in heaven, we've got the other world theme park. Yeah. You know, so it is that very kind of even-handed approach. And so we end, as we began, with sort of 
Mongans, other world powers being acknowledged. Exactly. And I think that's important. I know that Colin Kill's being, you expect him to be acknowledged. Yeah, yeah. But it's Mongans connection to that old world and mm. as you say his reading of the landscape yeah, yeah. which is being recognised exactly in so many ways this story of the meeting of Cullum Kill and Mungon it's got a really close parallel to the Ogle of Nishinoric text as I sort of indicated earlier in the Ogle of Nishinoric it is St Patrick who is asking Oshin and Kilta for the Dinghenicus. And of, that's the basis of it. It isn't really it? is the heart of what the Ogle of Nishinoric is about. Mm. And so here we have again the saint Cullum Kill yeah. asking Mungon. There is a major difference though. Yeah. I get the feeling that here are Mungon and Cullum Kill who are being seen and see each other as equals. Mm. That that's not the way Patrick sees Ashin and yeah. Quilter. And uh, that awful bit where he talks to Ashin and he tells him that Finn and the Fenians are in hell. Yeah. And uh, poor Ashin said, well you know, if they're in hell, I don't want to live anymore. Yeah, yeah. That's not a meeting of equals. No, it does have a very different tone to it. Well, there's also connections between our text and the one that Kerry publishes in the same article in Eru 52, which is known as the Imogolev in Druid Bran Augusim Ban Ortho Fevel, which sounds very long. The conversation between Bran's Druid and the woman prophetess of Fevel. Right, so th- it takes place in the same area. It's also around Lockfoyle. It's again seems to be framed as a response to the same question. What was here before the lake of Loch Fevel erupted? And I, and I get the feeling that this prophetess woman, it's almost like she's replacing the woman with the branch of flowers. Oh, I think it's, I feel like it is the same woman that yeah. instead of having at the beginning of Imra of Bran, we had Bran talking to the woman with the apple branch. This is now Bran's deputy, if mm-hmm. you like, his druid talking to the woman's druid. And as we've seen from my tour and many other places, oh yeah, it's the king's poet talks to talks to the to other, other king's poets. poet yeah. exactly. So th- th- these are the two either seers or druids. And one of the most important bits of it is is talking about the Isle of Women that oh yeah Bran is going to. Oh, I think so. And the value of it. It talks about the woman troop. It but, does, yeah. Uh, you know, the treasures of the woman troop which was shaped would be a great find for any man who could find it. Yeah, yeah. So there definitely seems to be this Druid having encouraged Bran to go and find this Isle of Women. And it's almost that this, this uh, woman prophetess, as she's termed in the title, is a deputy from the Island of Women. And so it, it is this meeting of the two sides again. It's a nice alternative version. I think it of is. the call of Bran. Yes, it is, but it also seems to have that missing Dinyanicus of Lockfoyle involved. Well, also at the end of this uh, colloquy uh, between the two Druid, um, there's a couple of lines which I think imply that Bran sort of knows that Mongon is coming, but knows that it will be a repeated incarnation, that he will have many lifetimes. So those last two lines... Sweetly, the king used to say, though he goes, let him come back again. Yeah, and I think that that's got... The repeated life of Mungon. This is developing into a very interesting story. Yes. (laughs) Okay, so what have we got left now? Well, we've got a few poetic fragments that refer to Mungon, um, and then we've got some nice little hints, uh, but only hints, about Mungon's death tale. Okay, well, let's start with the fragments. Let's. 
Now, these, like many other little scraps of poetry that we've come across, are ret retained because they're examples of particular metres and they come from the Middle Irish poetry so text. So sort of teaching guides. Exactly, yeah, yeah, and giving good examples. So the first of these is, you know, they're, they're really very short, only a stanza or two. The first one starts off, O Mungon, O Mananon, and it describes a territory that sweeps up the west coast of Ireland, sort of like the tide, uh, going all the way from County Cork in the south up to Sligo, mm -hmm. near where we are now. Um, that's really most of what could be said about that one. Um, the second one actually puts Mungon into a shield-splitting contest, <laughs> which sounds terribly masculine to me, um, with Concover. And so it's really tying him in, I suppose, with the Ulster Tales and that particular chronology. And it's just that one stanza. It, it is, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the third? Well, the third one is kind of nice for our purposes because it concerns Dovlacha. And it's a poem from, I think, 1141. And it confirms that Mungon had a wife called Dovlacha. It, these stanzas actually appear as part of a Banhenicus, so mm -hmm. a history of women. Um, so we've got a nice bit of slightly earlier evidence, let's say, yeah. that Mungon had a wife called Mungon. Uh, yeah, so we know Dovlacha. she was recognised as uh, his wife in the 12th century. At least. It isn't at least left to the 14th century. Yes, yeah. So it's earlier than the Book of Fermoy. Um, and it also then reinforces Queen Tegern as Mungon's mother. They're, they're worth looking at, even they if are. they're only short. Exactly, and uh, I will put up the text of the poems uh, with a translation, a couple of notes about the metres. For and anyone who's interested. Exactly, and hopefully uh, recordings of the stanzas it's read worth in Irish. The, you know, they, it's so different when you hear a piece of poetry oh, it is. spoken in its original Yes. Hang on. Yes. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> spoken in Irish. I know what you mean. Sorry, I can't resist that. So let's have a look at the fragments that we have concerning Mungon's death. Now, we touched on it somewhat because it features prominently in the story of Imrov Bran, um, in Mananon's prophecy. It goes all the way to prophesying his death. Yeah, maybe we better have another look at that. Well, this is what we get from Imrov Bran, and I suppose if we sort of mentally bullet point it... You get sort of, yeah, his time will be short. Yes. I mean, he's only 50 years in the world. Yeah, and indeed we will see that he gets killed in battle quite young. Well, young for him, obviously. And we'll see that reflected in the annals later. Yeah, he's to be struck down... Mm -hmm. by a dragon from over the sea. Yeah. But you wrote down in some of your notes mm -hmm. that, I saw that he it was either a wish or a stone or the weapon of the dragon that kills him. Which yeah. is it? Well, <laughs> this is my way of translating poetry. Um, mm. As people who've read the blog will see, the word is al, but it could be oil. And so that has these different senses. You know, it could be that he's struck down because a dragon wants him dead or that it's the, the dragon has a stone. But there is a gloss then um, on that line which says that as of Mungon literally the death of, mm -hmm. violent death of Mungon, which to me sounds like a tail title. We have Azatha as tail type. So it's sort of a lost tail. I think so, yeah. yeah. So that Azath Mungon will happen at the Battle of Shenlever mm -hmm. and that he will be struck down by a stone from a sling cast by a character called Arthur MacBigar, uh, who is a Briton. 
Right, so it's obviously if that's a gloss, other people found it slightly confusing as well. Well, yes. I mean, we know about our glossator <laughs> on uh, Imrov Bran. He didn't have much imagination. But this gloss as well ties in to the account in the annals. Okay, and Shenlever? Shenlever, and there's also a place named uh, Loch Lowe. They're not specifically identified. They seem to be in a territory known as Creekvania, which is between the River Suck and the River Shannon. It's essentially Roscommon Longford. Yeah, it is. Right, it's so sort it's of tracked down by a stone, thrown by a dragon in Longford. Exactly. Well, actually, it can't <laughs> be in Longford because that's not really it. <laughs> well, from Athleague. Athleague is yeah, one right. of the terminal just, points. I so. just like the idea. I know, yeah. Right, well, what have you been doing? Oh, yeah, I just happened to, you know, there's a dragon in Longford who happens to be throwing stones. That sounds completely feasible to me. <laughs> Yeah, well, it mentions Lotlow now because he, he says he will beg a drink from Lotlow while he gazes on a stream of blood. Mm-hmm. Um, then it sort of goes on after death. Yes. This doesn't mean that he begs for a drink after death, does it? Uh, mm, I don't think so. This is another gloss, and it's another one of the Latin glosses on this poem. It says, you know, dot I dot post mortem. Okay. So uh, I think it's sort of slightly out of place, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> he asked for a post mortem drink of water. Yeah. Now, we have met somebody who did that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but... the corpse in The Adventures of Nero. Exactly. That's a post-mortem character asking for a drink of water. So That's not, not no, but it's not what's <laughs> happening here. And then the best bit. It says the fair host will take him away to the untroubled festival. So he's being taken to the Isle of Promise, to the Isle of Women to recover. Hmm. Mm-hmm. But this cloud wheel that takes him away, is it yes. some sort of magic mist, I presume? It could well be. Um, I mean, I quite like to think that it's possibly a stellar phenomenon because in, mo- <laughs> in modern Irish, rough nail, which is a cloud wheel, is a term used for a nebula. Right. So, you know. That is a bit of a. That's a stretch. One. That's a stretch. Yeah. You know, but We're it is. Spaceships now. I know. I know. Taken away up to a nebula. Beam me up, Scotty. Yeah. I absolutely. told you it was in the original. <laughs> <laughs> it was Meyer's notes on his edition of the Imrov Brown that led me to go and actually look at the annals of the four masters and that's where there's the entry in the year 620 although there's a correction earlier on in the annals saying actually this is five years too soon so 625 and it says that Mungon the son of Fiachnalorga was killed at the battle of Shenlevor by a stone from a sling cast by Artur son of Bigor uh, a Briton about which the poet Begborcha said the following Cold is the wind over Islay, which they have coming into Kintyre, or they did a severe deed because of it. They will kill Mongorn, son of Fierkna. There's a little bit more. But that's the only bit that really talks about the death of Mongorn. It is. It's not much of it. Yeah, yeah. And it is kind of mixed in with a couple of other characters and their deaths as well. But, um, yeah, that's kind of it. That's all we've got. Yeah. I also find it interesting that this poem from the Four Masters, it talks about this cold wind over Kintyre. Kintyre. Yeah, which is, you know, part of the Inner Hebrides. I can never tell which is inner and which is out. Up there in Scotland, just yeah. off the coast. I mean, you can see Kintyre from the coast of Antrim on a clear day. That's how close it is. And even this thing of a host coming from Isla in order to kill Mungon, in the Imrov Bran, uh, Manon is described as coming from Isla. So it's both his father and his killer yeah. seem to come from the same place. Yeah, and these are islands to the east. Right. You know, so Meyer didn't have to sort of 
hyper-correct it and say, oh, all islands are to the west. They're not. These ones are definitely and of to course, the east. anything over there is sort of locked within enemy territory, it even is. if it isn't. I mean, it, in many ways, the, the Hebrides and the Scottish islands, they're the closest Lachlan that we have. You know, they are the islands of the foreigners. They're sort of to the north, sort of to the east. We're, of course, early influenced by Norse culture. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. And in fact, Isla and Man were part of the same Viking kingdom. They're known islands nearby that give us that same quality. And what about this bickel? Yeah, now this is an interesting one. It's a weird sounding word, you know, no matter how you put it. Um, And so when I tried to analyse it, there's a possibility that it's from a a Latin loan word, bicara, uh, which is actually vicar. Bicker the vicar. Bicker the vicar. It is. It's it's uh, basically a Latin transliteration. Uh, vicar? <laughs> but actually, I think it might be connected to a nice word called bickera, which is only translated in the dictionary as a term of contempt. <laughs> Although it does seem connected to a pastime, a sport or a game um, or a competition known as Bickerucht, which I can only imagine is the ancient Irish uh, art of name-calling. Bickering? I wondered about that. Yeah. I wondered, is this actually bickering? But it was the ob- ancient Irish sport of bickering. Exactly, <laughs> or animism as it's known. <laughs> now there's one thing I really have to say mm. before we leave this Death of Mongan. I don't know whether you'd notice, but the Death of Mongan is remarkably reminiscent of the death of King Arthur after the Battle of Camelot. Now, I've only just noticed this mm. myself, and it's a, I don't know what to make of it. Mm. Arthur, as he's dying, or at the point of death, he gets carried away across the water to another world mm. by a fair host of noble queens. Yes. Or maybe to an Isle of Women. Yeah. I, it just... It's odd. And then you've got this really odd idea that he's killed by an Arthur yeah. who's a Briton. Yes. Uh, and a dragon from over the sea, as if echoes of Arthur yeah. have got dragged into the story. Yeah. Or is it the other way around? Mm. Now, the first mention of Arthur, as far as I know, appears in the Welsh annals and is around 10th century. Mm. The stories there are somewhat different. And as far as I'm aware, the story of the carrying of Arthur to Avalon on his death mm. only appears in Geoffrey of Monmouth in... 1136. Now I know that's pseudo-historical and it's really just a whole lot of folklore, yeah. but that's the point. Mm. He he was drawing on all sorts of folklore, probably oral tales. Exactly. Who knows, perhaps even our lost story of the death of Mongol? Mm-hmm. You've told me that Imrov Bron is 8th century. Yeah, if not parts of it 7th century. So unless we're to believe in the literal truth of Mananan's prophetic abilities, (laughs) the story of the death of the hero must have been at least contemporary with that. Yes. Right, so that's a long time before stories of Arthur are around. Yeah, it's a good few centuries. But it wouldn't be the first time that we'd come across uh, earlier Irish sources yeah. uh, for, if you like, the better known literature, particularly within the Arthurian. I mean, if you go back to Fleth Frickren, um we... That's Gwen and the Green Knight. Exactly. We yeah. were quite certain that that beheading game... Oh, I'm quite certain it it's definitely source appears material. in long before Gawain and the Green And there Knight. are several um, stories that I found that echo parts of the Holy Grail. Yes. You know, over yeah. and over again. Now, I'm not trying to draw the two together, mm. but isn't it just, you know, is this enough, is Mongan that much of a source? Story? Well, 
It's beginning to look it like is, it. Yeah, he's definitely a key character. Well, I suppose we are coming to the end of this. So I suppose I we like... ought to make some attempt to kind of draw it together and yes. see what we've got. Yes. I mean, really, we should have known what would happen when we set out to explore <laughs> Team Rama. Yeah. Only four of them, you said. I you know. did, you told me. This is really easy. There's, There's only, only four, four texts, I know. But then we really should have known. I mean, an Imrov is setting out into the unknown. It's a deliberately undirected journey right you know. I, I mean and we did set off with bran and we should have known i mean the first thing you find is a woman waving an apple branch uh, yeah and, and you know what happens when you meet those i know it was really fair warning you know we decided to get in the boat and then follow her into the other world and now look right. what's happening yeah. <laughs> and, then, yeah, and then there's man and on. I yeah. mean, that's the first person as soon as we met out now i was expecting we'd meet islands mm. wonders a few strange animals yeah treasure here and there um but no there's man and on with the news of a hero a poet king who's going to relink the temporal world of the hero with the other world of the imagination. Yeah. Hey, isn't it brilliant? <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it seems extraordinary now that Mungon is so little known. We didn't know much about him when Not we began. at all. It was only a name, a kind of a footnote. But over these three episodes and through looking at his stories, we've been exploring, you know, the role of the poet, both within kingship and this world but also the connection with the other world we've discovered a gem of a story about one of the great woman characters oh I good think. old of lucker she is absolutely one of my heroes now uh, and we found out that you can't explore mongan without getting into taliesin mm. finn and now king arthur <laughs> now i wasn't expecting that no <laughs> Now, it hasn't all been smooth sailing, as you might expect. We've met a few squalls along the way. I mean, the one that has been, that we've just been talking about, if you like, is a big problem between history and mythology and mm-hmm. how they relate to one another, and particularly how does a text that's seen as historical, like the annals, how does that relate to mythological stories mm. about, you know... The same people. Yeah, exactly. Mm. I mean, the thing with texts like the Annals, you know, the Annals of the Four Masters, a lot of it was written, as far as we can date it, Mm -hmm. uh, sort of 12th century and later. But the Annals start when the world is 3,000 years old and you have the coming of people like Kesser and Partholin. Very Bishop Usher, really. It is. It's so similar to what Bishop Usher is now laughed at for doing, for adding up all the dates in the Bible. But that's very much what these Annals were. The thing is, though, that there are chunks of the annals which are more or less contemporaneous to their writing. And so it's almost like the closer you get to the date of around the 12th, 13th century, if you like, there's a bit more reliability. But there's no clear distinction which is what we would now think of as history and which is mythology. And even with written history, there are dangers in trusting written history. And the problem is that we we are trained to trust things that are written down. Mm. So if we see a date... We are trained to accept it as a fact, yeah. whereas a once upon a time, mm. we're trained to accept as fiction. Yeah. And to be honest, there's as much likelihood of a historical Arthur mm. as a historical Mon- Mon- Mongon or as a historical Taliesin. That is to say that it isn't any more likely than it is unlikely. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's not saying they don't exist. Mm. It's just saying we don't know. Exactly. Um, now, a poet Taliesin and a poet King Mongon are actually perfectly feasible. They are, yeah. Uh, and they fit into history. Mm. 
Um, film's a different matter. <laughs> now, I mean, stories may have gone round these historical characters like Most in Moonlight, or it may be the other way round. The mythological mm. characters attract history, as we said earlier. Yeah. The problem is that focusing only on historicity, mm. it causes you to sort of lose your way by taking a shortcut. So if you're following, following the sort of, how do I put it, the tangled life journey of a story, mm. if you're only interested in the one aspect of the journey, mm. the history bit, you sort of miss the best bit. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you miss out on what the story is actually about. Yeah, you miss getting lost in the thickets and yeah. having all the fun. Exactly. Well, history as a discipline mm. is by its nature reductive and analytic. It's this idea of getting to a kernel of truth, mm-hmm. you know, and that's not necessarily what a story is about. But as you said, there's a difference between seeing something with a date written beside us and a once upon a time. And those are the narrative markers that set up our expectations. Mm -hmm. And of course, in the text we're looking at, they are joyfully jumbled. Exactly. This is something, as you might have gathered, that we've been talking about and thinking about uh, a great deal. You know, it really is quite complex and is too complex to go into now. I'm sure you've heard enough already today. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I think we have. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it's worth an episode in itself. Um, it's probably better dealt with if we just write a book. <laughs> God, yeah, yeah. I mean, to the point, this has been a tangled episode. Yeah, I hope we've made it clear. By the time it's, we've got to nearly the end of it, it is nearly the end of yeah. it, I'm babbling about Klingons. Yeah. <laughs> well, this sort of begs the question, how does someone as crucial and important as Mungon get forgotten? I suppose what we've got from all this, the stories of Mongol, I suppose, are designed to sort of reinforce and re-knit the powers and status of the poet mm. and to restore the other world authority, which sort of creates yeah, a marvellous exemplar of the poet king. Yes. And as we found, um, particularly when we looked at the stories around Cormac, that uh, not long after these stories we're talking about, there was... A, a favouring of the king over the poet. Mm-hmm. That the poets then became seen as obscure, as antiquated, as holding on to authority that they didn't deserve. So the poet side of the equation was pushed off. And then, you know, Mungon, as the straddler of two worlds, you know, and of two positions of authority, then wasn't an exemplar that was wanted no, anymore. his mission becomes less relevant. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, or to put it another way, it became unfashionable. Mm. We thought, as we have been pushed on this, our own Imrov, by Mananon, right at the beginning of Imrov Bran, that we might as well dedicate our next episode, the last in their series, to the man himself. And we promise he does have some tricks up his sleeve. Oh, yeah. And I mean that literally. <laughs> <laughs> well, we hope we've got, you got through this episode. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that it hasn't been too complicated, but we've, we've enjoyed it. Yeah. We hope it. you have. Thank you for listening to Ogilaf Nanagas. Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologists Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody. For more information or to subscribe, please visit www.storyarchaeology.com. You can get in touch via email on storyarchaeologists at gmail.com.